Uh, but I'll pray before we start. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time uh, that we have together. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you give us instruction through it. And we pray now that you give us hearts that are soft. We pray that you give us uh, minds to understand. Uh, we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you in how you want us to live. And we pray that you would um, build us together as a church, as a, as a family, who love one another, who are living for you. And we pray that you help us to see uh, Jesus more clearly tonight. Please help me as I preach. Please um, help me to say things that are true. And I pray, God, that um, what is good and right would stick and anything that I'm contributing that's wrong, that would, those things would uh, fall to the ground. Build us up, we pray, uh, through Christ, by your Spirit. Amen. Okay, so I'll give you a little bit of historical context uh, before we dive in, because Amos, uh, one of the minor prophets, not minor because of significance, minor because of size, um, Historical context. So, uh, yeah, rather than just dive in, we're trying to think what's actually going on, where do these words come from, what does it all mean? Um, well, it's probably good just to quickly remember that um, Israel are the people of God. And what that means is that they uh, have been chosen by God, as we know, uh, they were called out of uh, Egypt. God made promises to Abraham. He rescues them. He brings them out of Egypt. Uh, he takes them into the land that he promised to give to their great-grandfather Abraham. Um, and the Lord, um, not just any God, it's the God of the Bible, Yahweh, or however we pronounce that word. Um, it's this God, and he enters into a covenant with the people of Israel, um, as he's bringing them into uh, this land of Canaan. Uh, and that covenant, as we know, is centered around uh, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. They've put them on the tablets of stone. They've put them inside the, um, the Ark or of the Covenant. Um, and these laws, they uh, commit the people to allegiance to Yahweh, uh, that they will completely, wholeheartedly uh, be devoted to him first four words, kind of having that vertical element um, of devotion to the Lord, and the second six commandments are relating to uh, how they were to treat people, um, truth, justice. Um, this was at the center of the life of the Israelites. Uh, together with that, uh, as we remember, they had their sacrifices, they, they had the whole worship system. Um, the priests, uh, the temple, the festivals, to praise the Lord, to remember his works, to be cleansed year by year. This is at the center of these people. They belong to the Lord, they belong to Yahweh, they're his people, he's brought them into the land. And the way that this covenant worked was it was a do this and live covenant. The Lord sets before them life on the one hand, death on the other, blessings or curses. And the way that it works is obedience 
results in life, disobedience results in death. It's kind of a simple system, really. They need to be completely faithful to the covenant. It's relevant for everybody in the whole nation. And that is at the heart of who these people are and what life in the land is going to consist of. If they want to remain in the land and they want to be blessed and they want their crops to produce and they want, the, uh, they want to be able to beat their enemies and they want their um, wives to have children, they need to be completely devoted uh, to the covenant. That's the people of Israel. That's the people of Yahweh in the land. Now, they're in the land, and now at this point, when Amos arrives on the scene, the nation has been divided for about 150 years, a little bit more. Right, so they were united under King David, they were united under King Solomon, uh, but then they divide under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and they've been that way divided for a bit over 150 years. Israel is in the north, and Judah, so Israel, right, uh, I've been talking about Israel, Israel's now in the north, and that's kind of, uh, that's how they get referred to, um, even though the whole nation is Israel. And Judah is in the south. Um, in the north, you have a kind of pseudo-system of uh, worship that happens. You have, um, in a place uh, just north of the border, a place called Bethel, there is a, um, a setup that one of the, the northern kings has created. There's a festival on, in, the, um, in the eighth month rather than the seventh. Uh, they have a couple of golden calves there. If you know the story of scripture, that's a bad thing that they worship. Um, uh, but they have their own priests, but they're non-Levitical priests. So there's a kind of, it looks a little bit like the worship in the south, but it's got significant marks that make it not like worship in the south. Uh, in the north, Israel, uh, secondly, the capital is Samaria. And in Samaria, there's a temple for Baal, and that's where the king's house is. And that's in about the center of Israel. In the south, which is Judah, you have Jerusalem, which, as you know, is the key place where Yahweh has chosen to place his name. You have the temple that Solomon built, and that's where David reigned from. So Judah is in the south, and Jerusalem is in the south, and that's the significant center there, right? And they've been in conflict on and off. They've been in conflict with one another. They've been in conflict with the surrounding nations for a bit over 150 years, right? That's the setting. That's how they're living. And the uh, religious life of both the North and the South has been, uh, it's been up and down. It's kind of declines. It kind of, it kind of goes up and down on its way down is probably the, the feeling that it has. Uh, there's all kinds of idolatry happening, um, different uh, places where they would worship that are not the designated places that, that Yahweh had, um, uh, had instructed them. And so, Clearly, they're not committed to the covenant. <coughs> so, into that context comes Amos. Amos is a contemporary, roughly, with Isaiah. Uh, and he's a shepherd and a farmer. We can see that in the opening words. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. And we see that further um, later on in the letter in chapter 7, where he tells Amaziah that he's been, he came from following after the sheep. He's a shepherd and he's a farmer. He's in the south, that's where he's from, Tekoa, where it says here, among the shepherds of Tekoa. So he's from Judah. Uh, but he spends a considerable amount of his time 
prophesying in the north. And we know that from chapter 7, when Amaziah says to him, go back down to the south, don't come up here to Bethel to prophesy. Right? To Bethel. Remember, that's where that other centre of worship is in the north. Now, <clears throat> Amos, he comes into that context and he's preaching to, predominantly, Israel. Not so much Judah. And we can see that from the beginning, opening words. Look what it says. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel. See that? And there's clues as we go through the letter. We'll see uh, references to Samaria are strong and also his encounter with Amaziah shows that that's where the focus of his um, prophecies are. And this book that we have in front of us is the words that he saw. The vision, chapter 1, verse 1, he saw. Um, and it's been recorded and preserved for us by God. And so, that's what we have. There's Amos. Here's his words. For Israel, that's the setting. Um, what's he going to say? Well, one last brief thing to note before we get into the content of what he says, and that is just a little bit about prophets. And this is really just to line up what we've already said about the people of God with the prophet and his mission. So prophets, chief feature of them is that they speak God's words. And these words are shaped by the covenant and by promises. And one way to look at it, I think, is to think about the covenant behind them and the promises before them. The covenant behind them, calling Israel back to fidelity to the covenant, and promises before them, recalling and expanding the vision of restoration and salvation, not just of Israel and Judah, but of the whole world. So the prophet's kind of got this role, he's got the covenants behind him, and he's got the promises in front of him, and they're kind of shaping his words, which are, he's speaking God's words to the people. And therefore we have a little bit more work to do, to kind of locate ourselves into this world, and that's partly why we're doing this right now, this little journey, is to get ourselves back out there to do that work before we come back into our present. Uh, but I think that if we do that, we'll see that there are lots of rewards. We'll see that uh, this prophecy will open up for us um, the Lord's character. We'll get to see his heart. We'll get to see the Lord's capacity, who he is and his relationship to the world. Keep an eye out for that. And we'll see, therefore, how we should respond as we grow in our knowledge of him. Uh, reading Amos will give us a different view of history. We'll see history under the sovereign reign of this God. We'll see history accountable to the sovereign reign of this God. And we'll see ourselves in a different world to the one portrayed in popular opinion. And a key feature is going to be that Yahweh is at the centre of reality. He's at the centre of the world. And finally, the book as a whole presses into us the recognition of a need for a saviour. We're going to feel that we need a saviour. 
Right. Amos prophesies. Sorry, I said one last thing. I'm going to say, this is, I promise this is now the last thing. This is preparatory. Bear with me. I hope that it's worth it. And that's the last thing about, um, one last thing about prophecy, and that is the way prophecy works. I may be preaching to the choir, but it's worth remembering. Amos gets this information across to us, not just by uh, propositional statements. He doesn't just tell us, you're sinful, uh, Israel. He helps Israel to feel that they're sinful. He doesn't just say to us, the Lord is angry. He helps us to feel that the Lord is angry by virtue of the genre. The poetry, the imagery, the repetition. The whole point is that the prophecy itself and the way that it's written is meant to be affective. It's meant to impress itself upon us. We're supposed to immerse ourselves into the word so that we can feel the punch of the word because the information that's being conveyed isn't just something for us to grasp uh, in a cerebral way, just in our minds, but to feel in our hearts. And that means that as we listen to it, this word, this prophecy, we need to pay, we're going to have to pay attention to that, we have to work with that. And God willing, I'll help us to bring some of that out. So with that lengthy introduction, let's get into some of the content. Right. How does this prophecy start? Let's read verse, well, I'll read verse 2. Follow on with me. He said, this is what Amos said. This is the vision he saw, the words of Amos. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. So, see that word roars. Lions roar. And that's what Yahweh, that's what the Lord does here. He roars and he thunders. And so, Amos, first thing, straight off the bat, portrays the Lord like a lion roaring and the sound of it like thunder. And it's such a roar that the pastures of the shepherds, and what the shepherds take care of, sheep, and what the lions eat, impala and all other kinds of things, but sheep, right, in this context, and the top of Carmel withers. We're meant to feel straight off the bat a kind of rumbling roar coming from Zion, and they, oh, what's this going to be? The pastures mourn. And then what does he say? What is the Lord now going to say? What's the content? This is what the Lord says, verse 3. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. 
I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aram, and the one who holds the scepter in beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod, the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked, I will send fire on Timan that will consume the fortresses of Bosra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses. Amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day, her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's kings. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler, and kill all her officials within him, says the Lord. Pause there. Don't read on. Right. Okay. Did you notice the pattern? You must have noticed the pattern. For three sins and for four, I will not relate. Okay? Three plus four equals seven. There's a, there's a number of ways that you can understand why he's saying three and four. They all effectively end in the conclusion, it's a kind of complete amount of sin. Lots of sin, complete amount, complete amount of sin, and therefore he won't relent. Now, where are these places? Given that we don't kind of um, live in that time, it can feel a bit like, whoa, I just got bombarded with like 50 names and I don't really know what's going on. If you're a local, it's really, really clear what's happening, Okay. And I'm going to help us see it, because I made a diagram with a picture that I drew. Okay. <laughs> right. First group, uh, for three sins of Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria. And you can see here uh, the people of Aram. That's this region up here. Uh, second is in uh, verse 6, for three sins of Gaza. That's down here in Philistia. Hey, look at that. Um, right, and you can see that there at the end of verse 8, till the last of the Philistines are dead. Okay, the third 
Uh, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Tyre. Where's Tyre? Up there. Um, the next uh, group is uh, Edom. Where are they? They're in the southeast. And you notice what we've done here? Uh, and what's the next group? Uh, the Ammonites. Here they are. The next group, the Moabites. Here they are. Right. How many different nations have we done so far? Shout it out. Six. Very good. Now, here's the thing. The number seven is important for Israel. But let's not go there for a second. Before we get there, let's just have a think about what they are indicted for. Okay? So just pull, pull back with me. That's what he's just done. He's gone all around. And what are they indicted for? Surprisingly, not idolatry. Did you notice that? It wasn't idolatry. What all of them were indicted for was violence. That was the main issue. Brutal and inhumane. That's what they're being charged for. That's what the Lord is roaring from Zion about. Let's have a look at a couple of places where we can see that. In verse 5, uh, sorry, in verse 3, look, listen to this. This is why Damascus is in trouble. Because she threshed Gilead, right, threshing the wheat, with threshers having iron teeth. That's brutal, isn't it? What an image. Gilead is this whole region here. This is the Jordan, and this is Gilead region here, right? So Damascus, because she threshed Gilead with a threshing iron. Oh, thread, the wheat, sorry, this is my action. You know, the wheat, you're, you're threshing the wheat. Cutting through the wheat. It's brutal. What about the next group, Philistia? They take a whole community's captive. And, and the picture of what that actually looks like is horrific. T dragging these people away from their communities. And we perhaps know it well when we see mass, masses of refugees fleeing war-torn countries. For Tyre, again, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. Trading people and breaking the bond that you had with them. It's essentially, they've, traitor, they've been traitors, they've, they've broken their word and sold people off to Edom. That's what Tyre's been doing. They must have a trade, a people trade running through. What about verse 11? Edom himself, not just a victim, but a perpetrator. Verse 11b, his anger, he slaughtered the women of the land, pursued his brother with the sword, and his anger raged continually, and his fury flamed unchecked. Just brutal inhumane, vicious anger, war against other nations. And Ammon. Why three sins of the fourth? Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. 
is horrific and we're meant to feel that. Why? So that he could extend his borders. So that Ammon could have a little bit more land, he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. And Moab here is burning the, the Edom's king, the bones, to ashes. Just angry, violent, brutal. And God, the Lord, is mad about that. He doesn't like that. That is not making him happy. He roars from Zion. And what does he say? I will send fire. I will send fire and it will consume. I will break the, the gate bar of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Abba. The Lord is angry and he will repay. And then, <coughs> as we've said, we have six. Okay, so we've got to there, Israel's listening, and then what's the seventh? Chapter 2, verse 4. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah, and for four, I will not relent. Boom. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods of their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. What now? Seven nations all denounced? The idea is, according to the way the prophecy is written, is that's, that's it. Seven all denounced. At this point, Israel is perhaps not surprised. There might be a sense where Israel kind of agrees. Israel may even be thinking, go Amos, here is a prophet, victory for Israel. Okay? Awesome. You're going to destroy all the people around us. Ah, oh, Judah gets taken down as well. Well, yeah, we've been in conflict with them for ages. But then there's the A. And that's the surprise. So chapter 2, verse 6, this is what the Lord says. And this is odd because you think the kind of the, the, the song has kind of ended. Everybody's been trapping with the beat, and we've gone, oh, the song has ended. Oh, it's kicked back up again. That's funny. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. And maybe that's how we are generally. Uh, as people, we find it easier to spot everyone else's faults um, until the camera turns on us. And perhaps Israel feels themselves in that same position at this point. Now, I wonder what would England's be? Because so far, and that's how I think Israel would have felt, we've thought about all these other people, we've thought about all these nations, and then it gets swung around to Israel. What would England's be? I'll read it out. For three sins of England, 
even for four, I will not relent. Because they reached into the wombs of pregnant women and dragged out innocent babies. Abortion. You thought you were getting away with this, England. You thought all was well. You thought Brexit was your biggest problem. But I've seen what filthy things you do in sterilised rooms. And I'm coming to avenge the helpless. Reckon with God, England. The lion rules. I do not sit back while nations act wickedly. And don't think the morning after pill doesn't count. Over 200,000 every year in England. Less than 1% of those are to save the mother's life. Less than 1% of those are to help the siblings. And less than 2% of those are because of fetal anomaly, which leaves 98% to over 200,000 every year. Because you reached into the wounds of pregnant women and dragged out innocent babies. Does this shock you? Because that's how the prophets should make us feel. We should feel sick to the stomach. That's how the prophecy ought to feel. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, because that's not where he goes. It doesn't go there. I've just applied it for now to us. Even for four, I will not relent. Why? Chapter 2, verse 6. Because they sell the innocent for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use here means has sex with the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. The Amorites were all the people living in this land before they moved them in. Though they were as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. 
I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for forty years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to to prophesy. I went where I did for England because this is all the nations and that's how we're meant to feel. All the nations are indicted. Every nation is accountable. And so we should think about how England might be held accountable. But where Amos goes is he goes for social injustice. They sell the innocent for silver. They trade people so that they can have more money. And the needy for a pair of sandals. That sounds really petty, doesn't it? Now, I personally don't know about international trade and what working situations are like for some people in some countries. But somehow I feel like it might just be the case that there are people in in wealthy countries like England who, for a pair of Birkenstocks, or and I'm not picking on Birkenstocks, they might be a very ethical company. But the point is, for a pair of sandals, somebody, I wouldn't be surprised, knows that there are some heads getting trampled on in order to make that happen. It's international trade. It's probably international trade here. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Social injustice. And that's going to be a major one for Amos. That's where the book's going to go. I think one thing that emerges out of Amos is the Lord really, really, really doesn't like injustice. He really doesn't like when people are fat and comfortable at the expense of others. But at the beginning here of the prophecy, he goes for a few other things that are happening as well. There's sexual immorality, and it's, it's just it's gross. Father and son use the same girl. Not only so, but they lie down beside every altar. That means they worship at false gods on garments taken in pledge. So people who don't have enough money, they'll take their garment as a surety, guarantee that you'll pay your debt. And then rather than spoil my own garment, I'll have sex with a shrine prostitute prostitute or something uh, on, on your coat and uh, make it uh, filthy instead of mine. And in the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And they should have known better. God had been on their side. God had been faithful to them. They had more reason than anyone else to not be like this. 
But it's probably because, and I think this is a, a pattern of how things go, that the vertical affects the horizontal. That the first four commandments, pertaining to the vertical direction, end up affecting the last six commandments, pertaining to the horizontal direction. That when the first four go, the second six are going to go as well. And that when they say, we don't want the Nazarites, the people who are a picture of holiness and reverence and devotion to the Lord, and when they say, we don't want the prophets, when we reject the word of the Lord, that we end up uh, with society breaking down, caving in, and injustice taking over. And that's the situation, that's what they're indicted for. That's Israel. And so what will the Lord do? This is the final portion that we're going to look at this morning. We're just going to get to the end of the chapter here and then we'll take a step back for a couple of minutes just to draw a couple of conclusions for ourselves. What will happen? What will the Lord do? He then says, Now then, verse 13, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Here's what he says. The Lord says, I'm coming, and it is absolutely inescapable. Look at how much he says it's inescapable. And this is what I was saying at the beginning about the, the, the feeling of the prophecy. Right? I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. You're going to get pressed down so that you can't bear up under it. And the swift won't get away. doesn't matter how fast you run, you will get caught. The strong will not muster their strength. It doesn't matter how strong you are, something stronger than you is coming to get you. The warrior will not save his life. It doesn't matter how skillful you are with the sword, something more skillful is going to come to cut you down. The archer will not stand his ground, and the fleet-footed soldier will not get away. See how inescapable this is? The horseman will not save his life. It doesn't even matter if you've got a horse or what, what weaponry you have. Even the bravest warriors, the man who is a warrior among warriors, will flee naked on that day. As I have read Amos slowly a number of times, the only way I can describe it is I've done this. Oh. That is not good. That is not good. Either because of what the people are doing or because of what is coming because of how they've behaved. The pace, relentless, the Lord is coming, and he's roared from Zion. Well, stepping back, 
throw a couple of threads together for our service. Everybody, all the nations, and this is how you're meant to feel at the end of this. Israel's been hit too. Here's what's happened. The Lord has called every single nation to account. Every nation that didn't know him is called to account for the way that they've treated others. Israel and Judah, for the way that they've responded to him. But every single nation is in big trouble. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 Says that, says that it is destined for people to die once and then to face judgment. And we will be called to have loved God with all of our hearts, soul, mind and strength and to have loved our neighbour as ourselves. And what we thought that nobody would see the Lord sees. And though Syria and Tyre and Ammon and Edom and even Judah and Israel may have thought that they were fine, the Lord says, the day is coming and when you will all reckon with me. And this description of inescapable destruction is what the Lord will bring on those who have not kept those two commands. Now, if that was the end of the story, things would look pretty bleak, wouldn't they? And we got to here, and there's not been any good news. We are Christians, and we know Christ, and we know that after Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, you have these words, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time. The Lord is coming. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That's incredible. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. All those sins that we have done, how we have mistreated people, how we have shut out God's words, Christ has borne our sins. And so there is a word of comfort. I know I spoke hard. There is a word of comfort even for those who have had an abortion or been involved in one. Because Christ died for sins, all sins. And where these have been forgiven, 
chapter 10, verse 18 of Hebrews. Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. For their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of men. He was crushed. He was oppressed. He was pierced open to bear the sins of men. Run to him and find grace.